0: Well, most medical students agree when uh, one of the hardest parts of the passing the medical licensing after they graduate uh, medical school is biochemistry. And uh, as you know, I can't give you my impression of biochemistry because my training is in computers. Um, but there's a ton of prerequisite material that you have to learn before you come to the test. And part partly why it's so hard is that, biochemistry is at the forefront of uh, medicine, so it's changing on a daily basis and So some sample questions are uh, Next slide Uh, One of the sample questions are you know, which of the following is not involved in the biosynthesis of a protein molecule? You know, we all know this Um, codon I don't even know how to say these ribosome messenger RNA or a spicy Chick-fil-A sandwich. I know you guys were all, all thinking ribosome, but it's actually D, a spicy Chick-fil-A sandwich. But there's, there's so many prerequisites that you have to learn and all kinds of information you have to memorize. Well, just like biochemistry has prerequisites, we have prerequisites for the commands in Scripture. Turn to 1 Peter 1. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, But I want to look at 1 Peter 1 very briefly just to give us an example of how we can lift a command out of Scripture and not understand fully what uh, is presented to us. 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Peter writes to us, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God." What's the simple command here? Love one another. I mean, and sometimes we lift that out of Scripture and we just say, all you have to know is love one another. That's it. But there's more to the Scriptures. There's more that Peter wanted us to know. We must love one another earnestly from the heart. And the text says, look at what the passage says, this is only possible once we have checked our motives in our hearts to ensure that we actually do have a true love for the brethren. Additionally, we can only do this if we purify our hearts according to the Word of God. And then look at verse 23, none of this is possible, none of this is possible if we don't have the spiritual reality of being born again. The world thinks, you know, love one another is all we're teaching, but there's infinitely more to the Scriptures. The non-Christian doesn't even have the faculties to obey, doesn't even have the faculties to love. And we know this change is not physical. It's not a choice that we make. Oh, I'm going to wake up today and just go to church. The change that has been made in our hearts is a spiritual one. God Himself has changed us. He's changed our very nature and what does the hymn writer says? He was blind, but now he sees. That's a divine change by God himself, one which will last forever. And so, we do have a simple command, love one another, but there's all these prerequisites to understand truly what that means in the passage. Turn to chapter 2, and we come to our text, First Peter 2, 1 to 3. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by you, you may grow up in respect to your salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. The passage before us, like in 1 Peter 1, has a simple command, desire the Word, desire the pure milk of the Word. And yet, Peter tells us uh, that as a result of this command, um, we are going to grow up in all respects to our salvation. Peter tells us that it's a a direct result of us seeking this Word, that we grow up. And so this morning, we're going to see the Christian formula for spiritual growth. It's E equals MC squared. That is we are energized with spiritual growth when uh, the milk of the word is put together with Christian character. You didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? So this morning we're going to see the inception, the impossibility, and the imperative. And really, after this sermon, just remember E equals MC squared when we get to the end, and you'll remember what this whole lesson has been about. Well, the inception, the beginning, In other words, Peter qualifies the imperative, spiritual growth is only possible for those who've been born again. The impossibility, spiritual growth is impossible. It's impossible if we are not putting off sin. Or to state it in the positive, spiritual growth is only possible when we're putting off sin. And then finally, the imperative, uh, the simple command, spiritual growth is only possible when we long for the pure milk of the Word. So first, spiritual growth is only possible for those who've been born again. Look at verse 3, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. This word for taste is in all four Gospels. It's used in a slightly different context in the Gospels for tasting death. Um, John 2 uses it. You'll remember in Cana of Galilee, the water turned to wine. They brought it to the head waiter, and he tasted it. So it's the normal word for taste. And I'm sure you've realized it before, but it's very interesting in Scripture that very often we use uh, the senses for, uh, spiritual, um, in a spiritual sense. Peter in Second Peter says that if we're, if we're not exhibiting Christian character, we've forgotten our former purification from sins. And he says, you are blind, spiritually blind. How often does Jesus within the book of Revelation say, he who has an ear, let him hear. Our senses are always used, um, it seems, in a metaphorical sense for spiritual understanding. It's not as though they were literally deaf, but if you can't hear, you're spiritually deaf. And I, I think I must point this out because later in your reading you may see this. We see the word taste again in Hebrews 6, and it's the same word, and it it looks like the same thing that we're saying here in Peter. It says they tasted of the heavenly gift. And it speaks of those in the first century that imagine you you're a first century Jew, and you see all these miracles, and you see what Christ has done, and then on on the cusp of that, you know, He's crucified. You hear stories that He's resurrected, and then you see all the disciples, uh, and they're performing miracles. It speaks of these people who have seen, they've tasted of these miracles. They've seen the spiritual enlightenment that the disciples have, and yet they don't receive it fully. They don't swallow. So taste there does not mean salvation, but it's just experiencing, you know, this first-century miracles that were happening, uh, which um, which was proving that Jesus Christ himself as well as the disciples came from God himself. So it's, it's really, we shouldn't take every metaphorical usage and think that all of Scripture does the same thing with it. In Hebrews 6, it's not talking about salvation. But in 1 Peter 2, it is talking about salvation. It says, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, This word is used all throughout Scripture, uh, the New Testament. In Matthew 11.30, it's translated differently. My yoke is, what does your Bible say, easy or light? This is that word here. It's used in a metaphorical sense. The the burden is kind because it's light. Paul says in Romans 2.4, we should not be ignorant of the riches of His kindness. not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, for us to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Do you hear the context? Paul says, you guys need to be kind. Remember that you experienced this kindness from the Lord. You, because of your sin, you be kind. God was kind to you, you be kind just like the parable of uh, the debtor. These examples show, as God demonstrates and wants us as Christians to demonstrate this same attribute, the same kindness that he deals with us. But we have tasted this kindness. He doesn't want us to be ignorant that while we were wretched sinners, God had kindness towards us. such a beautiful metaphor that we as Christians we've tasted that the Lord is kind what does salvation taste like kindness it's a divine recognition of the truth of man's state before a holy God and really we can only see God as kind when we are truly made aware of our state before him Only when we come to God and recognize we have absolutely nothing to offer. We have absolutely nothing to give to God to appease him that we see him as kind. It's just like we see in Psalm eighteen, it says "To, to the pure, they see God as pure, but to the crooked they see him as twisted. They can't understand, they can't understand the kindness of the Lord because they haven't experienced that kindness themselves. The gods of other religions we see in ancient literature, they're, they're, they're angry and it's, it's almost like God has turned on his head with um, the gods of other religions because they're, they're angry until they're appeased by innocent humans who offer them something. The gods are cruel and only become kind when we offer them something. That's, that's God on its, it put God's character on its head. He's the one who is kind. We're the ones who are wicked. For while we were still yet helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the kindness of God. To recognize that God is kind can only happen once we've understood truly and embraced the gospel. To understand that God is kind is to understand the depths of our own sin because when we understand the depths of our own sin we understand just how much mercy and grace we've received if you have tasted that the Lord is good and really the reality of longing for the pure milk of the world this reality uh, can only happen if we've been born again and so let's state it in the positive or logically order if we have been born again It is a reality that we will long for the pure milk of the Word. So we see spiritual growth, it's only possible for those who've been born again. Next, we see the impossibility. Spiritual growth is only possible when we are putting off sin. And this hits us where we are, doesn't it? Listen to the Scripture again. Therefore, putting aside all wickedness and all guile, hypocrisy and evil and envy and evil speech, just as newly born babes long for the pure milk of the Word in order that you may grow in Him with respect to your salvation. What we may not recognize in the English is that the first verse is actually bound to the command in the second verse. In other words, Peter tells us that in order to perform this command, of longing for the pure milk of the world, uh, milk of the word, we must be putting off our sin, and if we 're not it 's not going to happen we 're not going to get the result we 're not going to grow spiritually we 're simply going to be accumulating knowledge, and knowledge without love is nothing so we 're told to put off our sin, and note we don 't get a chorus uh, uh, Comprehensive list of sins here, but it hits the high points. All wickedness is mentioned. This is a general term for all evil. So no matter what sin you think of, it's all encompassing. It encompasses everything that proceeds from men's hearts. What does Flip Wilson say? You know, the the devil did me do it. Uh, the devil made me do it. Um, it's probably a reference that no one gets except my age and up. But. We need no help in sinning. Flip Wilson is completely wrong. We sin just fine by ourselves. And really, even if we were to belong to a monastery somewhere in the remotest place on the, on the planet, we would still have our own hearts manufacturing factories of idols. All guile. This is deceit. I can't help when I hear this word to think of John, the first chapter, when Christ first meets Nathaniel, what does he say? Indeed, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And this—who who is speaking? This is Jesus Christ himself speaking to Nathaniel. I mean, imagine years later, Nathaniel thinks of that scene and says, Jesus Christ said, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And it wasn't saying that he was sinless, but it was saying that he was upright in his dealings with mankind. But what a statement. It speaks of someone who does not deal uh, justly or fairly with his neighbor, intent to defraud or intent to take advantage of someone. We see this with the the first-century religious leaders who would swallow, it says, uh, widows' houses. And it's this attribute, this, this deceit, this guile, this greed um, to take advantage of people. This is what motivated our Lord to cleanse the temple twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end. The money changers. We may look at that historically and say, oh, what a, what a convenience. You didn't have to bring your goat all the way from Asia Minor. You could buy it just here. But they were doing it um, to take advantage of these people during Passover. They sought to defraud hypocrisy. Peter had just told his readers that one who purifies his heart in obedience to the Word of God has as the result an unhypocritical love, an unhypocritical love of the brethren. It's what we call what we would call true love. It's love that's not motivated by what you can get or simply because you're told to, but it's a love that flows out that is unhypocritical no matter what circumstance you find yourself in. It's a pure love for the welfare of others because you genuinely care for them, because you genuinely have compassion for them. This is unlike uh, what we see sometimes in the Old Testament or in the New Testament about religious leaders. They wondered what they could get from people. It's a pure love. We become kind just as God Himself is kind. And remember, this word, we've tasted that the Lord is kind. It's a a kindness, even, even with those that are evil towards us. The core of hypocrisy, as we know, is when we claim to be one thing and yet on the inside, we're something else. Or in a certain situation, at work, we're we're, uh, at church, we're a certain person, at work, we're another person. Peter tells us, we cannot expect to be growing spiritually if we are hypocrites, if we're putting on a mask. How can we be growing spiritually if we're not genuine? envy. Every list of sins within the New Testament mentions either envy or jealousy. It's one of the Ten Commandments, as we know. We even have a common saying, and we say it with, uh, you know, lightheartedly, the grass is always greener on the other side. How can we be growing spiritually if we're not content where we are? If we let what we want grow to be such an idol in our heart that it's, it's what we worship instead of God himself. We're nothing more than the religious leaders of Christ's day. There's a bunch of sins that are mentioned uh, with respect to the religious leaders, but one of them, very prominently, if you remember, is envy. They envied Jesus Christ, because they saw the, the praise that he got. They saw the, the large crowds following him, and they, they saw it, and they wanted it to be them. Mark 15 says, Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he was aware. Listen to this. Pilate, a Roman who had no connections with the religious, religious leaders except tolerated them for he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy." Even this Roman governor was aware of the envy of the religious leaders, the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. How can these religious leaders expect to grow spiritually? They were in spiritual retrograde. Luke 11 says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They were green with envy because the people, uh, the people were seeing what the religious leaders really were. Christ was exposing them and showing them for what they were. It's the chief priests in John 12 who actually wanted to put Christ, uh, Lazarus to death yeah right after he was resurrected. It's the chief priests with whom Judas conspired to betray Christ. And if we were ever tempted to think that the chief priests were misunderstood or well-meaning or really were spiritually growing, it says, Scripture says that it was the chief priest who walked by Christ on the cross and said, he saved others, let him save himself. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to put this innocent man, as far as they knew, this innocent man on the cross, that wasn't enough to to say, all right, we got our, our following back. That wasn't enough. You had to go to the foot of the cross and jeer this man himself. He's the Son of God. And even if you didn't think he was the Son of God, how cruel, how lacking in compassion. Next is all slander. This is general speech against someone. Uh, Gossip fits into this category. And gossip gossip is a very hard sin to nail down. And what I mean by that is uh, if we define gossip as simply saying something bad about someone else, which you might be tempted to say, that doesn't cut the mustard. Why? Because then our Lord would be guilty of gossip. Uh, And that's not true. He was without sin. He talked about the religious leaders, sometimes even behind their back. They weren't there. But what's wrong with this definition is that gossip is a hard thing to nail down because it deals with intent. It deals with the intent of the heart. It's the intent to exalt yourself and to debase someone, to make yourself look good and make them look poor. It's a lack of humility. It's a lack of compassion. It's a lack of dealing with your own sin. I'm 48, and I've been in a lot of churches over the years, and I've seen seen the people gossip about the pastor. I've even been in churches where the the pastor gossips about the people, um, oddly enough. I've even been in churches where the pastor or other leaders say, no, don't talk about situations. That's gossip, and it wasn't gossip. But sadly, we are all prone to gossip. Why? Because we all want to look good. We all want to look really good, and we all have a propensity to justify ourselves in front of men. How about you? Do you actively slander people in the body to make yourself look good and to make others look bad? You come home from church or maybe midweek and say, oh, that person is impossible. If they were gone, I could, I could be a better Christian or would be better off with that person gone. This, this is at the heart of gossip. You slander someone else. You think that they don't matter. You're more important. And really, we don't even need others to gossip. You remember the tax collector and the Pharisee? The Pharisee was gossiping about the tax collector to God Himself. We don't need anyone. We can gossip about people to the Lord. We must be putting off our sin in order to be growing spiritually. We can't be harboring these sins and thinking they're okay. We must be putting on Christian character, love, kindness, compassion, humility, gentleness. How often does our pastor say, if we're not killing sin, it will be killing us? So spiritual growth, it's only possible for those who have been born again. It's only possible when we're putting off sin. And finally, spiritual growth is only possible when we long for the pure milk of the Word therefore putting aside all wickedness and all guile and all hypocrisy and envy and all evil speech, just as newly born babes long for the pure milk of the word in order that you may grow in him with respect to your salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter uses a striking simile. He says, as those who have been born again earlier. He mentioned this in chapter 1, as we saw and then he, he elaborates on that metaphor uh, and says, as newborn babes. Peter remind us of, uh, reminded us of what Christ told Nicodemus, that he must be born again. And that, that, that simile, that metaphor is carried all through the New Testament. Because what does a baby need to grow? Obviously, milk. And in our context, this milk is the very Word of God. And just as Peter reminds us that it's absolutely imperative that a baby needs uh, its mother's milk, um, so too a Christian, in order to experience growth, desperately needs the Word. You will be in spiritual starvation without it. Paul extends this metaphor in Corinthians when he says that, you know, we we have uh, the milk of the Word, but I, I wasn't willing to give you solid food yet because you weren't ready for it. He's talking about maybe perhaps complex theology. He says we still need to go over the fundamentals of Christianity before you guys can, can take it because you're spiritually immature. You're in your sin. You have to grow a little bit before we can cover these difficult topics. And when you, when you think about it, when we when you, when you approach the Scriptures, it's so simple. The message of the Bible is so simple. A child could understand it. The world says, oh, who can understand this book? You're just going to distort it. Don't read it for yourself. You know, have some religious leader explain it to you. It's like, no, you, every Christian needs to be imbibing the pure milk of the Word. This is an excuse and a distortion And it's a distortion straight from the vows of hell. Satan does not want you to be reading this. The demons do not want you to be reading this. How often does a a song or a poem written by this Hebrew shepherd boy 3,000 years ago speak to our very soul? Psalm 23 is still read at non-Christians' funerals. This, this word, and what we've seen going in Sunday school through the book of Job, it speaks where we are. It speaks to our very souls. I mean, this is such an ancient, uh, some of these books are so ancient, well, all of them are very ancient, at the very least 2,000 years, and yet they, they speak to us exactly where they are, where we are. God has, God has given us his word, and men say, no, we can't understand it this is a lie straight out of the pit of hell. Because what it, it, it says God is unkind. Why would he give us this book if we can't understand it? How easy is the command before us? And it's, it's with a, a simile that we can all understand. Just as a baby drinks milk, so do we need milk to grow spiritually. Everyone can understand that. In humanity. How much more simplistic can we be, can we get? Be born again, put off sin, study the Word. <laughs> that's it. That's, that's what we need to know this morning. Be born again, put off sin, study the Word. What's the result? As a baby grows, so will we spiritually. We will grow in Christ with respect to our salvation. We will become more and more like Christ. Don't you want to be more and more like Christ? Don't you want to be looked at as kind and gentle? The reality of the internal change will manifest it more and more. And what does Christ say in the Sermon on the Mount? That they may see your good deeds and praise God our Father in heaven. It will have the unintended consequence, or the intended consequence, depending on how you look at it, that people will see your life being spiritually changed over and over, and they will see the Savior for themselves. And this is a lesson for all Christians. We never graduate from this lesson. When could we graduate from this lesson? We continually have to be being reminded of our salvation, putting off sin, and study the Word. None of us have arrived. Even if you memorize every word verbatim in this book, guess what? You still need to pour over it, to meditate on it, to pray over it, and to put off sin. The more we know about the Bible, the more we understand The depths of knowledge we don't know I mean I find that when I study a passage I just scratch the surface and we're always going to be putting off sin we're always going to be learning are we content to not purify our hearts in obedience to his word if we're not putting off sin we aren't going to be reading and longing for the word We're not going to want to approach this book if you're not putting off sin. If you're content with your sin, you're not going to want to read this book. And you say, well, yeah, and you make excuses. I'm not a reader. There's no excuse with technology these days. You can have the scriptures read to you. You can be driving and hear it. You could put it on half speed and listen to the Bible real fast. Let's not become complacent about our sin. and really to read the Word. There's a vulnerability, isn't there? It's to be laid before Christ. How can we not read the Word and be laid bare before our Lord or feel the conviction? I was always told in academia going through classes, when you're reading a book, read with a pencil in your your hand. This is for taking notes and being critical about what you're reading. But with a Christian, As a Christian, we read with our heart in our hand, critically not analyzing the word, but with our very souls, how we might change. E equals MC squared. We're energized with spiritual growth when we have the milk of the word, and we add to it Christian character. Well, as we talked about, you have to be a Christian first. If you're listening, this morning, and you're not a Christian, that change has to come before anything. You need to see yourself laid bare before Christ Himself, that you are without, wholly unwithout resources, uh, without resources before a holy God, that you have nothing to give to Him, that no money would, would satiate God because He demands absolute perfect holiness. And can you do that? I don't think so. But Christ Himself came. In the form of a man, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was resurrected, and now His righteousness, He offers and extends that to you if you would just have faith. Come before Him, repent of your sins, and be laid before uh, the Savior of the universe. That's the change. He would change your very heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh.